Good morning and welcome you to this uh, part of our service. As you well know, I've been um, having topics the last, well, since about March, uh, minus a time or two, on um, the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the believer in the church. And we're going to bring that to an end this morning. <clears throat> this will be the last time you hear about it from me specifically. And I would like to um, address a topic entitled Spirit Liberty, the Liberty of the Spirit. And I'll have to admit, this topic is not one I actually look forward to giving because I realize that this topic is unpopular, it could be offensive, and I understand from talking to many different people, not necessarily here at this church, but different people, it is, it is poorly understood and poorly practiced. At least that would be my opinion. And I'm afraid that, I'm aware I should say, that there is a, there is a, a real um, possibility that what I say this morning could be misunderstood and misinterpreted. And I'm aware of that. And um, so I hope that that's not the case, and I hope that you will be as the noble Bereans were, and that you will take what you heard this morning, not at face value, but that you will measure it against God's Word. And I want to say this, and I'm completely sincere when I say this, I do not stand up here as authority on this subject. And if I err in some way, I would be a abundantly opening, open to hearing where I err. So I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. The impetus for this subject probably comes from an um, argument that seems to be getting louder in volume as the days go on, or maybe it's not louder in volume, but maybe I'm more aware of it. But the argument goes something like this. Um, there is no way that the liberty of the Spirit can be um, experienced in a setting where there is any attempt made at a united stand against the uh, inroads of worldliness. Okay, let's put it that way. In other words, you will hear people running um, from settings such as ours where an attempt is made at having liberty in the spirit and yet a church standard beside it. And the argument is made that is impossible, it can't be done. And I realize, I, I very much realize that um, bias exists on both sides of this subject. I'm very aware of that. And so I would like to stick as close to the scriptures this morning as possible. And again, I want you to correct me where I err, if I err. Okay? Let's borrow his prayer. Dear Lord, we come to you at the, at the uh, outset of this topic, and Lord, we realize that this is a topic we can't get wrong, and we realize our vulnerability to interpreting it poorly, and so Lord, be with us today, and let only those things be said that should be said. We ask this in your name, amen. Okay, so we're going to start out trying to explain exactly what the scripture means when it talks about liberty in the spirit. I'm going to be referring to a lot of texts this morning, not necessarily turning to them, but referring to them. 
for time constraints' sake. There's three texts that I think um, help us to understand what is meant by liberty in the Spirit. The first one that's often a, a go-to reference is 2 Corinthians 3:17 that says, "Now where the Spirit, I'm sorry, now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty." Now you take that verse as a standalone alone verse, and you can do you can get so much mileage, poor mileage, out of that verse. It's unbelievable. But the context clearly shows that the discussion is the great freedom that one enjoys when he receives the grace of God at salvation. And he is given the gift of the Spirit, and that liberty allows him to live above the demands and the guilt of the Jewish law. They are free from that veil that covers the heart of those Jewish people that have not experienced it. That's clearly the context. Jesus builds on this, but goes a different direction in John 8 when he says, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. If the son, therefore, shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Freedom from sin, freedom from the law. That's liberty in the spirit. In Galatians 5.1, another go-to verse Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free, and be not tangled again with the yoke of bondage. Well, we have to define what the yoke of bondage is. If we go back into chapter 4, we find that out. Paul says to the Galatian church in Galatians 4.3, Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. Well, what's the elements of the world? I'm going to write a, a word up here because we're going to be referring to it a number of times as we go through this. Now, you won't be able to pronounce the word and you won't know what it means, but I, I want to refer to it. So it's something like this. Uh, S-T-O-I-C-H-E-I-O-N. I can't say that word. It's a Greek word. But that's how it's spelled, at least in our English language. That word there, uh, elements is that Greek word right there, however you want to say it. If someone knows how to say it, you can go ahead and do that. But what it means is something orderly in arrangement, fundamental, elemental, principle, rudimental. So in other words, he's saying the yoke of bondage is when we walk under the rudiments, the elemental things of the world. Okay? And Paul clearly insists in Galatians 4 that those fundamental elemental things of the world were again the, that Jewish ceremonial law that some Galatians insisted on, on living under. He said that, that, that is bondage. If you want liberty and spirit, you will shut that off. In Colossians 2.8, Paul comes back and he writes to the church at Colossae and he uses similar language. He says in Colossians 2.8, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men and after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. That word rudiment, same word, that one right there. Something orderly in arrangement, fundamental, elemental, principle, rudimental. In that context, Paul is going after the heresy known as Gnosticism, which basically... The bottom line was they believed that the spirit and matter were completely separate. Okay, so this led to a form of asceticism. And if you read through Colossians, this comes out so clearly. They felt that if they abused their body and they did certain things and they denied themselves of certain things, 
that this was somehow going to help them gain favor with God. This belief actually led to a form of dualism where since matter and spirit are not related and, and, and since sin is a matter of the body, you can actually sin and it has no spiritual effect. Just a crazy idea. But this is the kind of thing they were buying into, right? This is why Paul, in his conversation in chapter 3, verse 5, he says, if you want to mortify something, he says, mortify the things that are upon this earth, such as evil concupiscence and, and on and on it goes. He said, you want, to, you want to kill something? Try that for a change. Try mortifying the deeds of the flesh. Get your Gnosticism uh, channeled in the right direction. In summary, spiritual liberty here in Galatians is, is not defined as a certain set of disciplines that we put ourselves under that are nothing more than elemental spirits of the world. Alright, let's look at some more um, verses that will help us understand this concept from the New Testament. What does liberty of the Spirit mean? Okay, Romans 8.1 there is now therefore no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Notice the word law. The law of the Spirit. A quick reading of the verses before and after this, um, this verse shows us that life in the Spirit rids us of slavery to fleshly desires. And I just love how he uses the word law. Liberty does not mean freedom from law. It means a different law. A complete departure from the slavery to the flesh. Another reference, Galatians 5.13. We come back to the, word, to, uh, the book of Galatians now. Here again, Paul is addressing liberty in the spirit and he says, Brethren, Ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion or a starting point or an opportunity to the flesh. But by love serve one another. By love be in bondage to. Be a slave to one another. Galatians 5.25, just a few verses later, he says, If you live in the Spirit, also walk in the Spirit. You know what that word walk is? That one right there. That word right there. If you live in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit. And that word walk is that word right there behind me. In other words, what he's saying here is, there is a certain way spirit people actually walk. It can be defined. You can look at them and you can say, you know what? They're walking in an orderly arrangement and it has the smell of the Spirit. So what can we learn here from these few verses? Well, liberty does not mean uh, fleshly. Anything that I would do for my fleshly attention or enjoyment is not liberty. That's slavery to the flesh. Okay? The other thing, and I just to... to to underline it again, spirit-filled will mean conforming to certain expressions of life. And that's exactly why Paul chose the word he did that's behind me. 
It is the rudimentary things of the spirit. It lives within definable boundaries. You just can't go out and have freedom to do anything you jolly well wish. That is not walking in the Spirit. And Paul is so clear on that. 1 Peter 2.16 Peter here. As free, and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, or, it could be worded this way, as free, and not using your liberty for a pretext for wickedness, but as servants of God. This is another very easy to understand warning from Peter that people have a propensity to sin and rebelliousness and they call it liberty in the spirit. They love to call it that. Peter, if you would read the surrounding verses in in 1 Peter 2 and you do that uh, the next time you get a chance, he very clearly shows that liberty is the ability to voluntarily submit oneself to the Lordship of Jesus and thus no longer be in bondage. It's very clear. Peter has more words to say in 2 Peter 2.19. He says, While they, or in the context, he's talking about false teachers. He says, While these false teachers promise liberty... They themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same he is brought into bondage. We can't get it much clearer than that. It's another warning from Peter how liberty is so often, liberty, Christian liberty is so often misconstrued as some kind of a law or freedom from a law But they willingly put themselves in servant or slavery to the bondage of sin. And they call it liberty. 1 Corinthians 8-9. Paul again, he addresses this, this thing of liberty to the Corinthian church. He says, but take heed. Lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. Paul at another point says, all things are expedient. All things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. In other words, there may be some things that are okay for me to do. Really not in and of themselves wrong. But because of who my brother is, and because of what he means to me, and because of what it means to be a brotherhood, I can't do that. It becomes a stumbling block. And he says, take heed. Do not use your liberty for a stumbling block to those that are weak. Please avoid offense, is what he says, as you exercise your liberty. So let's sum this up. What is liberty of the Spirit as we find it in these verses? Liberty is a freedom from Old Testament ceremonialism. That's what it is. It is, it is freedom from sin. It does not mean that I can indulge in worldly lusts and appetites. Liberty means that I will not offend my brother with my liberty, even if it's an okay thing. That's what Paul clearly said. In a word, liberty of the Spirit, when defined and looked at objectively and biblically, is almost completely the opposite 
of what it is advocated to be today. I, I don't know how else to read it. Now, I, I tried not to proof text this definition of liberty. And if I have missed something, please tell me. But as far as I can tell, that is the way liberty is biblically defined. This leads to a pressing question. So then can we be a part of a brotherhood that adheres to a set of somewhat specific guidelines for practical living and still be a spirit-led people? Or will this practice inevitably lead us to dead traditionalism which plagued the Jewish people of Jesus' day and we are witnesses of today as well? There's an off-quoted line, where the Bible speaks, we speak. Where the Bible is silent, we are silent. Or this one. In essentials, we will have unity. In non-essentials, we will have liberty. In all things, we will have charity. On the, on the, on the face value, those, those quotes sound very good. But let's just think about it. The Bible was very, very wise. It was written in a way, or I should say God was very wise when he gave the Bible to us. It was written in a way that it applied in year A.D. 100 and in the year A.D. 2100. It, it, go, it spans generations. So to be specific was impossible. What Jesus told his disciples, he said, when the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. He will do that. However, I do want to uh, add that we cannot ignore the fact that through the Gospels, Jesus, over and over again, he, he had conversations, he warned the Pharisees of what had happened to them by taking their traditions and making them doctrine. He said, you can't do that. He said in Mark, he said, you make the work of God of none effect through your tradition, which you have delivered, and many such things do ye. Alright, so there is a valid argument that can be made that we need an abundance of caution in this area. Abundance of caution. Lest we fall into the category of the Pharisees of Jesus' day. I will say, that there is many examples, I'm sorry to say it, of churches that were not properly cautious in this department and thoughtful and have made shipwreck unnecessarily. And we do well to take heed to that. But let's move on. We need to do a case study here that's going to help us to understand maybe what we can and what we can't do in this department. And we're going, to, uh, we're going to look at Acts 15. You can, you can turn there. Again, we're not going to read it, but we're going to refer to it. There seem to be two overriding issues in the, the time of the, of the New Testament church that plagued the church. The one was the Jewish Christians on one hand thought that if you were really going to be a Christian, you really needed to keep the Mosaic Law. You really needed to be circumcised. That's what they believed. And it, it was a problem that's addressed over and over in the epistles. There was another problem that just perpetually plagued the church, and that was this thing of eating meat offered to idols. And you have Paul taking large chunks of Corinthians and Romans and addressing this thing 
about this thing of eating meat offered to idols. And the argument that he would always make is that really eating meat offered to idols is not really wrong in and of itself. But he, but he would always say, for the sake of the weak brother, could you give that practice up? He would always make that appeal, both in Corinthians and Romans. And you can go back and read that. He would always end with that appeal. In Galatians 5.6, Paul also had some advice on circumcision. He said, For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything or uncircumcision, but faith that works by love. Now, now what Paul was saying here is he said, You Jews really have no reason to pride yourselves in being circumcised. You don't have to think you have one up on your Gentile brothers because you are. And by the way, you Gentiles don't necessarily have to think that you got a leg up because you are uncircumcised. He said, it's, to Jesus, it's neither here nor there. He said, it doesn't avail you one way or the other. So you don't have to really get too lifted up in pride about either, either way on this thing. And there's probably, possibly some other places where Paul addresses circumcision. I just lifted that particular one out. But you, you get the sense. This was a problem. These two things were overriding problems, right? So in Acts 15, the thing finally comes to a head. So we have these, these Jews coming down to Antioch. And they, Antioch was a new church getting established. And, and they said to these Antioch Christians, they said, really? If you really want to be Christians, you need to be circumcised. Well, Paul and Barnabas, who were missionaries and, and pillars in the, in, of the church of God, in verse 2 it says, there was no small dissension and disputation with them, with these particular people. And he said, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go to Jerusalem with the apostles, unto the apostles and elders about this question. So apparently they couldn't get it settled there in Antioch. Even though Paul and Barnabas obviously go toe-to-toe with these people. And so they said, all right, fine, we can agree on this. You guys go down there to to Jerusalem and you meet with James and Peter and that established church there at, uh, at Jerusalem. And you guys figure this thing out. So that's what they did. They went down there and um, um, verse 6, the apostles, elders came together to consider the matter. Verse 7, we have Peter standing up and giving his thing. We have uh, verse 12, we have Paul and Barnabas um, giving their peace, talking about the miracles and wonders God wrought in the Gentiles. And then in verse 13, we have James standing up and he says, you know, I, I want everybody to be quiet now. And he said, And he kind of summed the whole thing up. He said, as far as I can tell, it is unreasonable for us to expect these Gentile Christians to, to, to go through the rite of circumcision to be, um, to be Christians. He said that's going further than what we should go. However, he says in uh, verse 20, he says, well, verse 19, he goes, Wherefore my sentence is, that we trouble them not, which are from among the Gentiles that are turned to God but that we write unto them that they abstain abstain from pollution of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. And if you go over to verse 29, it it shows what the pollution of idols is. That ye abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood, from things strangled and from fornication. Alright, so the decision's clear. No circumcision, but 
You will abstain from meat offered to idols, from things strangled, from, thing, from things from blood, and from fornication. So let's dig into this a little bit deeper. I think we can understand the circumcision thing. The apostles were so worried that the church did not fall back on the keeping of the Mosaic law for their salvation. They wanted that to be so clear of that that they said, we are not going to let you do that. Even though it might be a good idea. And even though in the very next chapter, Paul takes Titus and circumcises him so that he'll fit into the Jews a little bit better, which I always just find that an amazing event. He said, we're not going to require that. Okay? But how about the things, the instruction on the things strangled and from blood? It is interesting to me that that was a decidedly Levitical law. Okay, if you go back to Leviticus 17.13, it says, And whatsoever man there be of the children of Israel and of strangers that sojourn among you, which hunteth and catcheth any beast or fowl that, that may be eaten, he shall even pour out the blood thereof and cover it with dust. For the life is in the blood. The blood is of it is for the life thereof. Therefore I say unto the children of Israel, Ye shall eat no blood of no manner of flesh, for the life of all flesh is in the blood thereof. Whosoever eateth it shall be cut off. Very, very... I mean, it's right in Leviticus. It's right there. However, the apostles did not feel like they were overstepping to uh, demand this of the Gentiles. I find that so fascinating. On the other hand, it was a very common practice for Gentiles to drink blood. They liked their blood. And they would drink it at ceremonies, compacts, treaties. And the feeling I get, hey, I'm thirsty for blood right now. Let's have a little blood. It, it was so disgusting to the, to the, to the Jewish Christians. I, I can only imagine how disgusting that was. For whatever reason, the apostles said, you know, that's too disgusting. We're going to say that that's no longer tolerated. We're gonna, we don't feel like that's overstepping. How about things offered to idols? I already told you, Paul made the case over and over again, you can eat meat offered to idols and you can do it with a clear conscience. I don't advise it, but you can. However, here, they took that, that what Paul called actual liberty and they said, don't do that anymore. You guys don't do that anymore. It's causing too much of an issue. Quit doing it. How about the fornication thing? I have to admit, I read over that numbers of times in my life and thought, why did they have to put down on a paper that you abstain for fornication? Isn't that like self-evident? Well, as I read into it a little bit, on the fornication thing, apparently the Gentile Christians were so predisposed to fornication in the heathen worship, in the ungodly temple practices, in the prostitution of the day, and in just life in general, that their sense of abhorrence for that practice probably wasn't as sharp as it should be. And it's a very likely, well, in, in Corinthians, it, it was right there. There was issues, sexual issues, that they were tolerating in the very church because they just didn't have a conscience about it. So they put it down on a piece of paper and they said, you will abstain from that. That won't be anymore. You, you folks got you got to conjure up a conscience about that thing. It is instructive to me that in this chapter you have such a wide variety of, of, uh, of people at this conference. 
You have Paul and Barnabas, you have Peter, you have James, you have, it says the whole church was there. And everybody had their say. Everybody, nobody, but it dominated the conversation. James simply summed up what he heard at the end of the, of the conversation. Multiple testimonies and perspectives were shared. And, and the, the, the thing that blesses me is in verse uh, 31. After they had this all figured out and they put it down. And they said when they read the thing they rejoiced for the consolation. And you can't tell me there were not people there that were arguing for the other side. But when, 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 the, when it went against what they believed in, they said, this is great. And everyone rejoiced for the consolation. If you turn back to verse 16, or I'm sorry, chapter 16 and um, verse 5, 4 and 5, it says, they went through the cities, they delivered these decrees to the different churches, and the churches were established in the faith, and they increased in number. And the context would suggest it was because there were satisfactory answers given to these belaboring questions. Okay. Quick lessons. Remember this. The people in this story were all Christians. They had all been given the Holy Spirit. Every one of them. Every one of them had been baptized. But they had some very, very, very unscriptural views of things. They, they, there was things they certainly did not have right. The elders here were very careful on the subject. And when it was all said and done, as I alluded to, everyone was happy. There's something to be said for what happened there at that Jerusalem conference, that everybody was happy when it was all said and done. They got something right there. They also realized, and this is very important, go to verse 28 in chapter 15. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us. The Holy Spirit was present and they knew it. But what did it seem good to? To lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. There are several lessons here. They realized that they could take this thing and run with it and go places they shouldn't and they could lay actually unnecessary requirements on these believers. And they said, we're not going to go there. But they also, just by default, were implying that there are some necessary things. And those things we want you to observe. All right, turn to Revelation 2. Revelation 2 and 3 are the letters to the churches that uh, we often refer to. And um, it is th- this to me is the clincher. If you read Revelation 2.14, and this is to the church at Pergamos, Jesus says, I have a few things against you, because you have there some that hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. Now, Go down to verse 20. This is to the church at Thyatira. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things offered to idols. Friends, that speaks volumes to me. 
Did Jesus ever teach anything about meat offered to idols when he traversed this earth? Zero. Nothing. Never hit the, never hit the radar. Jesus never addressed that. However, Jesus is speaking here to these churches. He is harking back to those apostles and elders in Jerusalem that came to that conclusion that it was no longer right for these people to eat things offered to idols. Extra biblical, if you will. And he said, I have something against you because you are doing that. There's something to be learned from that. There's something to be learned. The man-made rules of Acts 15, which, called, which caused peace in the church and faith to abound and great consolation, is spoken here by Jesus as something the churches were in error if they allowed in their midst. A takeaway caution here. Church practice and tradition can, can indeed, become a hindrance to the Spirit's movement in the brotherhood. There is no doubt about that. But it doesn't have to. It simply doesn't have to. It is not being honest with scripture or current observation to imply that a model where there is no church constitution is somehow more spiritual. That simply is not being honest with the scriptures. Okay, I'm going to wrap this up with a few observations. And perspective is everything. And we can fall off, we, and people do this all day long. They fall off on ditches and arguments that fit their bias. And I am so aware that as much as I want to say I'm not, I'm a human being and I'm probably biased. I just have to admit that. And so I'm going to try to, as an unbiased a way as I can, acknowledging that I'm biased, to address a few uh, issues that just come up inevitably over this, over this um, matter. All right, observation number one. Uh, pulling on uh, Acts 15 here yet a bit. I think it is, it is okay to conclude that we as individuals left to ourselves will generally succumb to an unbalanced view on things due to our own unique circumstances and life experiences and we need spirit-filled brothers to balance our views. Is that too strong of a statement? I'm certainly unbalanced. I'll admit that. I really need people to balance me out because I am an unbalanced man. The Jews were obviously unbalanced in their view of circumcision. The Gentiles were unbalanced in their views of what they could do and not cause offense. They were unbalanced people. However, every one of those people had received the Holy Spirit. They had. The, the, the lesson just is so clear. Let's never get to this idea that we alone, the Holy Spirit, will give us the only direction we need and we do not need anybody else's input. That, that, that just does not seem to ring clear with what happened here in Acts 15. It's also interesting to me that the conclusion was not let your conscience be your guide. That wasn't the conclusion that was, that was come to. And the problem was at Antioch. But who got the letters? All the churches. Every church got the letter. And who got the spanking in Revelation? Thyatira and, and um, Pergamos. Philippians 3.16 says this, Nevertheless, 
whereunto we have already attained, let us walk. Let's pause a moment. That word walk is that word right behind me again. Let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. Now, I want to say something here. There have been people that have gotten way, way, way too much mileage out of that verse. And I don't have the time to delve in to why they have. But there's one takeaway that we can, we can take from that verse. There is certain value and blessing of unity of practice. And I'll just leave it at that. Number two, our focus as a brotherhood must always be on Christ. And our applications must always be because of Christ. Where Christ is absent, rules will not make him present. But on the flip side, where Christ is present, rules will not necessarily make him flee. Jesus said in Matthew 23, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. You know what Jesus is saying there? He's like, I have no problem with your tithing. That's probably a good exercise. But he said, you have done it to the exclusion of the weightier matters of the law. And that's what gets us in trouble. Right there. That's where we run aground. We must be aware and accept the fact that a concerted brotherhood effort to keep us all on the straight and narrow by some type of church constitution will come with an inherent risk that it could become dead formality or, ta or traditionalism and we have to take decided, decisive steps to keep that from happening. We have to. And how can we? I'll throw out several ideas. The principle of a thing must always be at the forefront and not the application. And so many times that thing gets switched around. So many times. I'll give you an illustration, and I do it cautiously because I'm afraid that, well, it could be misunderstood, but I'm going to give it a try. The Bible speaks of the principle of modesty and simplicity. For the last at least 200, maybe 300 years, I'm not sure, maybe even longer, but it's pretty far back, Mennonite churches and Amish, such as ours, have made an attempt to keep that alive and well in our in our churches by simply having a, a pattern. It has varied a bit through the years, but a pattern for our sisters to wear a certain style of dress. It's obvious to you. There's no news to you. It's, it's been that way for, like I say, at least 200, maybe 300 years. And maybe even longer. I'm not sure. But it's pretty much become a hallmark. Now, there would be nobody in this audience, I would guess, would say that is the only way that, that the principle of modesty and simplicity can be practiced. I don't think there would be anybody else fool enough to say that. Neither would we judge somebody that is modest and simple that doesn't follow that particular pattern. I sure hope there's nobody like that here this morning because that wouldn't be right. That would be ignoring the weightier matters of the law. However, it has been at least at times the case where... Churches have come to satisfaction that a certain 
dress pattern was used, but the principles lost. It was either worn in a way that was not fitting, worn with something that was not fitting, or weighed in a way that was not fitting. All right? So there you have the flip. You have where the application becomes forefront, the principle is gone. Arguments are usually made in that department by people that God isn't bothered by little things, little nuances in our lives. And it's only we as people that get all worked up into a lather about those kinds of things. And I will grant you that happens. We as people get ourselves worked into a lather about things we shouldn't sometimes. However, I want you to listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10. Where, whether therefore ye eat, and this is in the context again of meat offered to idols, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Now let's stop there a minute. Does that sound like details to you? Eat, drink, or whatever you do? Sounds a bit like details. And then he gives the why for this. He says, Give not offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. Even as I please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. What Paul is saying here is, Personal details have to be carefully considered so God is glorified. And so I do not offend my brotherhood. And you know what? I will not even seek my own agenda so that many will be saved. Again, I have to stop here and stress one more time. It is so easy to become misfocused in this department and drag everybody kicking and screaming to a certain form and be satisfied that somehow we have a spiritual church. That doesn't cut it. The application becomes the focus instead of the heart, which is still marred with carnality. And when this happens, the weightier matters of the law are largely ignored, but the application is not the blame. It's not the application's blame. It's we as people with carnality deep in our hearts. The result of this model too many times breeds distaste and despite for a collective brotherhood position that comes from experiences where applications have long ceased to make sense or practice poorly and have just become a defining symbol of a certain sect. The hypocrisy is blindingly obvious and it becomes a breeding ground for cynicism. The application will be closely guarded, never allowed for discussion. And I will tell you, in a situation like this, the work of the Holy Spirit is running at a very low ebb if he is even present at all. And what one ends up with is a church of carnal, conformed people. The opposite, though, is also true. It is fairly common for people who claim superiority in spirit direction because of not having what they think are confining church standards will almost inevitably find themselves drifting sideways into the murky waters of what I call quasi-godliness, where generally the world becomes the standard by which they live. And somehow in their minds, the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the pride of life are explained away as liberty of the spirit. 
That is what Peter, to go back to Peter, that verse we read earlier, calls being a servant of corruption. Explain this to me, or you don't have to, but I, would, I, I think this is a question we need to ask. Maybe not ourselves, but, but apply it to where it fits your, your circumstance. How is the Spirit more present when we trade what, what could be called a modest application of dress for a pair of tight jeans and a tank top and insist it's a spiritual exercise? The chafing about applications is usually a result of a sinful heart and not the application because you will find many people that will ditch the application will ditch the principle not too many miles down the road and almost invariably these same people will eventually willingly compromise on the very essentials of God's word if you will John said in his epistle he said try the spirits because many false prophets are going out into the world you know folks I believe there's many sincere, honest people that because of poor church experiences have grown cynical and have definitely sincerely wanted to find a more scriptural, spiritual church to go to. I really believe that there is many people like that. Many. But what they fail to do is try the spirits. As they're leaving the door, they do not try the spirits on the way out. And they succumb to what Peter call, or Paul or I'm sorry John calls false prophets and seducing spirits. I believe there are people that are 100% sincere and believe 100% they're going down the right avenue and the seducing spirit has them by the neck. I have to wrap this up. As I have reflected and read church history of the last 75 years and have observed in my short lifetime what I have observed in you and yours. It seems part of the problem in many situations is a lack of people having what I call a personal constitution, where individuals will take the initiative by themselves to measure their lives by God's holy standard and be honest with their own tendencies to worldliness and excuse their worldliness as liberty in the spirit. I also know from experience and um, observation that many times in this situation, church leaders will make a valiant attempt to curb what is rapidly becoming all-out defiance to clear biblical teaching by making rule after rule after rule after rule to rope in what is becoming fast a runaway train of carnality under the guise of spiritual freedom. And I'm here to tell you that imposing standards, if you will, on carnal people in, a, in an effort to stimulate godliness is a noble effort, but it will never bring the desired fruit. Ever. Never. It never has. It never will. So what's the recourse? The only recourse that you and I have is found in the book of James. James says... We need to take time to expose ourselves to what he calls the law of liberty. 
He said, you need to look into the law of liberty. And we know what he's talking about. He's talking about this book right here. He said, expose yourself to it. He said, when you look in there, if you see something that mars your heart, you best take care of it right now. Don't let the day pass till you take care of it. That law of liberty will guide us if we're honest with that thing and the very nuances of our lives. If we will take that law of liberty and we will say, I'm going to buy this particular thing today. Does it match with the law of liberty? I'm going to wear this certain thing today. Does it match the law of liberty? If we could self-govern like that, we would be miles down the road. And I'm not insinuating that we don't. I'm encouraging you. If you're not, start it. If you are, continue. This will get you places that we can't possibly get otherwise. Remember this. We were talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will only reside in a holy temple. And you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Remember that. Isaiah says, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is Holy. I dwell on the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to to revive the heart of the contrite one. I need to close this. I hope that what I've said here this morning has resonated. I hope you have not found it offensive. I hope I have not erred. I hope you understand more what liberty in the Spirit is. I hope this extended look at the Holy Spirit has inspired you to walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. I hope it has done that. Revelation 22.17 says this, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will let him take the water of life freely.